0: For the Christian, the best is yet to come. You know, yes, we're filled with God's Spirit now. Yes, we have glimpses of God's glory now. But the best is still yet to come because God is going to fulfill all of his promises. Because we know that God will fulfill all of his promises, we can remain forever hopeful. In fact, we have a hope that will not Disappoint because we know that God simply will not fail us. I've titled today's message "Forever Hopeful." Forever hopeful, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter forty, Isaiah forty verses one through eight. And I like to at least once a year try to have a sermon and and a service that is really just focused on the the authority of God's word. In essence, what God's word says about itself. Obviously every service is scriptural, every service we want to have saturated with God's Word, and we're looking to God's Word, but, but sometimes we need to see about the authority of God's Word and what God's Word even says about ourselves. In, in other words, doctrine of, of the Bible, why we believe it, why it is true, and what it means to our lives today. And so I want to it, it kind of, and with that mindset, look at Isaiah chapter 40, our, our actual Uh, second song that we sang today we sang a part of this passage that we're going to be looking at and again the message is titled forever hopeful because we know that God is going to fulfill all of his word to his people and the best is yet to come so Isaiah 40 beginning at verse 1 it says comfort yes comfort my people says your God speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then the first part of verse 6 says, The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? I want to give you just a little bit of background before we continue on with the rest of the passage. In Isaiah's day, Isaiah was a prophet through the reign of multiple kings. And what had happened was God's chosen people uh, uh, the Jewish nation, the descendants of Abraham, had split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom that was called Israel. There was the southern kingdom that was called Judah. And Judah, its capital, was there at Jerusalem. Now, both kingdoms had become wicked before God. The northern kingdom of Israel, in fact, they had become so wicked that in Isaiah's day, when all this stuff was going on, the northern kingdom... Had Assyria come, attack them, and carry them away as captives in a form of God's judgment on them because they had completely strayed from the Lord and were worshiping false idols. So the southern kingdom, they saw this, they saw God's judgment on the northern kingdom but they persisted in their sin. They did not heed the warning. They did not heed the warning that God gave them. And and God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying, return to me, turn back. But they wouldn't. And so what you find through Isaiah, it's this interesting combination of prophecies where God is calling the people to himself, but he's also knowing that they will not return to him. He is also saying judgment is going to come. You're going to be disciplined. But he's also saying But here's what I'm going to do to restore you after the judgment has come. And so what is happening here in this passage, if you were to read Isaiah 39, you would have seen that Hezekiah was king during this time of this part of Isaiah. And some people from Babylon had come and they had visited Hezekiah. And Hezekiah basically just opened up all the doors to his kingdom and showed them all of his treasures and everything that was going on. And that was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Babylon would actually come years later and destroy Jerusalem and take the southern kingdom away captive. And so there is this impending judgment of God that's bearing down upon Judah. They're unwilling to repent. They're unwilling to turn. But even in that, God is promising restoration. He's Sending a message of comfort and, and hope. So the question is, well, what is this comfort of hope in the midst of this rebellious people? Well, if we pick back up where we left off in verse 6, the rest of verse 6 reads this. All flesh is grass. Okay, you think, well, that's not very hopeful. And its lo- loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely people are grass. So you are like, okay, that's... Basically saying we're just going to fade away and be blown away. That's not very hopeful. So where's the comfort that God is announcing? Well, it's specifically verse 8. And we can continue on, but I want to stop at verse 8 today. Specifically, the comfort is verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, what, stands, how long? Forever. Forever. And that's the comfort. The comfort is not found in the people, in their faithfulness or their ability to endure. The comfort, the message that the prophet has said to go cry aloud to these people is that God's Word is going to endure forever. And what Why that is so comforting is because the word that God was announcing was a message of restoration, a message of renewal, a message of salvation. And what God is, in a sense, saying is my word stands forever, so everything that I have purposed for you as my people, everything that I've spoken to you that I will do, I will see it through to the end. And because I have said it, you can mark it down. You can know it's true. It stands forever. So no matter what the circumstances of life are telling you, you can hold on to the fact that I will fulfill my word. That's the message. That's where they're to find their hope. So I have one main point for you this morning, and then we're going to have three kind of subpoints that are more applying it to our lives. The main point of this passage is this. The Word of our God stands forever. The Word of our God stands forever. Is there anything in your life apart from the Word of God that stands forever? Man, you can't even keep up with technology. As soon as you get a new phone, it's out of date, right? You get a new car, by the time you get to where you can figure out how to work everything on it, you know, it's out of date. Things are just constantly fading away, rusting, wearing out. Even the things that you think, well, this has got to be right. How many times have you been so convinced that this is how this situation, this has got to be right, this is how it is. And then you get a new piece of information and you're like, well, I had that one misjudged. We're constantly changing. Things are constantly fading away. There's nothing that endures except God's word. understanding that God's word endures forever, there is hope for those of us that put our faith in God's word. See, if you're here today and you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, that if you don't believe that God has spoken, if you don't believe the Bible is true, you don't have that hope. But if you will look into God's word and say, God, okay, you're claiming to have spoken, this is your word, and you'll begin to take steps to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you at your word. I'm going to see what you're going to do with this. You'll find a God that always fulfills his promises. He always keeps his word. And so I have three things for you this morning that will help us apply that to our day-to-day living just a little bit more. Number one, God's word is an enduring word. It's an enduring word. If you look at verses 7 and 8, what do I mean by enduring? That's kind of a big word. The grass withers, the flower fades because of the breath of the Lord has Blown upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word that stands forever is contrasted to the things of the world that fade away. You need a word that endures for you to put your faith in. You need a word that stands the test of time, that is applicable today than it was as it was a thousand or two thousand years ago. Right? I remember... In high school, I've told the story, I think, once before, maybe twice. I went to a track meet. I did not run track. I was out in across the country. I did not know what was going on in the world of track. But I had a coach that talked me into going to a track meet one time. They wanted me to run the four-by-one, four-by-one relay. I was fast. I had never done a handoff before, and I completely messed it up, totally botched the hand up. It was awful. They didn't invite me back. Let's just say that, Okay. But I get done with the four-by-one, and I'm about to leave, and the coach says, hey, uh, you want to run the 800? And I said, what's the 800? I mean, I didn't know anything about track. He goes, it's just, remember that word, just, he said, it's just two times around the track. That's what he said, oh, okay, just two times around the track, I can do that. I get in, get my feet in the stuff, I don't remember what it's called, and, and, uh, false start. So I screwed up the race from the beginning there. So they redo it. They get us all set again. I just take off. I'm a sprinter. So I take off. And I'm like, I am smoking these fools. These guys are sorry. I mean, they were so far behind me. And I'm running and I'm running and I get about three quarters of the way around the track and I start gassing out. People are catching me. By the time we're 400 yards, they're caught up with me about half have passed me by the time we get to 500 yards we're going around this this curve I'm in last place and we come around to the next straightaway and that's when the 800 runners that had trained to run an 800 kick it into high gear and they just left me in the dust see I thought oh it's just 800 yards I can just sprint the whole way but when it came to about 600 yards out I did not have the endurance to continue. I couldn't finish, and they were just picking up steam. They were about to finish in their strength. I was ready to tap out. I got so mad watching them just pull away from me, like I was standing still, and all I could think of was that coach saying, oh, it's just two times around the track, and I thought, I'm not even supposed to be in this race, and here they are just smoking me, and my lungs are burning, and I don't even want to finish this thing. So I start getting into, you know, complaining, poor me mode, and I look over and I see my bag. I had gotten back to about where my bag was in the middle of the track, and I'm like, forget this. And I just walk off the race in the middle of the race, kick off the shoes I'd borrowed from somebody else, grab my bag, and start heading to the car. I'm like, see ya. That's one of the few things ever in my life I've just been like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm done. I had no endurance. I felt tricked into it, you know, so I felt like that somehow justified just quitting the race just two times around the track. I had nothing, but it was that feeling where there was more to go and there was nothing left in the tank. I just had nothing more to give, and not only that, but I was watching other people surpass me. God, and his word, never, ever, ever, ever has that moment. What it means for God's Word to endure, it means that when God speaks, it is not only timely, it is not only for that moment, but it is always applicable. It always applies throughout every generation to the end of time. God's Word never runs out of steam. you with me on that? And so that's why we can gather Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That's why you can get up and you can read your Bible. That's why you can go to this Word and say, God man this was written isaiah let's say this was written around 600 bc god i'm going to go to something that was written 26 2700 years ago and i'm going to see how it endures and how you speak to me god today that's amazing god's word endures forever it's an enduring word the real problem is that we have when we're not getting out of anything out of god's word is, it's not that God's word doesn't apply to our life. It's not that God's word doesn't endure. It's not that God's word isn't true. It's that, especially in America, I believe, because we're trained to just make it on your own, do it on your own, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. We're trained in an individualistic mindset. I think that we most often approach God's word as this is just another self-help tool. And what happens is when you come to God's word as a self-help tool, what you're actually saying is, I want a God that does what I tell him to do. I want a God that does for me what I'm telling him I need him to do for me. And we're actually sitting in judgment of God's word rather than God's word was given that we might fall broken upon it. And so the problem is not whether God's Word endures or not, whether it's relevant for today or not. The problem is most often that we want a God of our own making. And so when we come to God's Word, and God's Word commands obedience in an area we don't want to obey, well, that's just not relevant. I'm not getting anything out of it. We quit having our quiet time because we're convicted, and we don't want to go to this Word that tells us how to live. We, we want to be the boss of our own lives. But really, it's foolish to live like that, if we'll be honest with ourselves enough. It's as foolish as this. I remember at a previous church, I was the youth pastor. There was a student that we realized later, part of his struggle was he was really running from a call to ministry. But he was in a, a place in his life where he was very rebellious, belling against his parents, had a girlfriend, and they thought they were going to go out and conquer the world together, and... Being rebellious and always running away together, and just causing problems for both families. And I remember one day his parents call me, and it was in the winter time. I don't remember if it was January, February, but it was a cold Texas month, and there was a storm. It's raining. It's cold. And his parents call and, and say he's we we had an argument. He left the house. We have found him. But he won't get in the car. He's just walking down the street in the rain. He left without shoes. He left without a coat. We know he doesn't have any money on him. But he won't get in the car. He's just walking in the rain by himself. And I said, "See if he'll talk to me." So I said, "Hey, Paul Michael's on the phone." So he "Okay." So he would talk to me. So I said, "Hey, man, what's going on?" He tells me everything that his parents have done. How his parents are so unfair, and they have all these expectations and how miserable his life is. And so I, I listened to all this stuff. I said, well, do you have any shoes? No, I don't have any shoes on. So it was pretty cold outside. your feet hurting? Yeah, I guess so. Or do you have a jacket? No, I don't have a jacket. I think it's, I was like, I think it's going to get in the 30s tonight. I said, do you have a place to stay? Well, not yet. Well, you probably going to get hungry, aren't you? Do you have any... You mean money? No, I just left the house. So I was mad. <laughs> he still has not figured out how foolish he is at this point. He's just back. He's doing his own thing. He's going to go his way. He wants to be in control of his own life. I said so. I was like, "Well, do, did your parents kick you out, or could you go back home with them?" No, I could go back home if I wanted to. Well, do you have food there? Yeah, I could eat there. I was like, "You have a place to stay?" Yeah. You got clothes, right? I was like, "Okay." See, I'm trying to help him get out of his own stupidity, see, by asking questions. And I finally just said, look, let me tell you what you're going to do, because you're obviously not getting it. I said, you're either going to be shoeless, homeless, hungry, old Robert, living under a bridge somewhere like a fool, Or you're going to get back in the car with your parents who love you, go to a house they provided for you, eat the food that they bought for you, put some dry clothes on that they bought for you, calm down, and tomorrow we'll talk about it. His mom gets back on the phone. He's in the car. Thank you. (laughs) That's how we are, though. God provides for us. He gives us the breath in our lungs. He provides the people around us that love us, that care for us. He gives us his spirit. He provides the forgiveness of sins. He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. He calls us to himself day after day. He pours out his spirit on all who believe. And we go, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. And God is saying, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. I've given you my word. My word endures forever. Come to my word, do what I say, and know the abundant life that I have for you. You see, the word is an enduring word. The question is, will we come to God's word with an attitude of, this is just a self-help thing for me to use at my disposal, or do we fall broken upon the word of God, ready to obey? The second is this. It's a word of truth, judgment, and hope. A word of truth, judgment, and hope, again, the context of Isaiah, the people needed to deal with their sin. It's a word of truth. It's also a word of judgment. God had to deal with their sin in and, and, and justice and in righteousness. He couldn't just overlook it. But he also had hope for them. He was speaking comfort to them. He wanted them to be restored. Again, it's a message of truth, of judgment, and of hope. So with that in mind, let's read back over verses 1 through 5, and then I want to explain this just a little bit more. Chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, yes, comfort my people. That's what God wants, says your God. Speak to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she's received from the Lord double for all her sins. God's saying, look, there will be comfort and restoration for you when we've dealt with your sins. We've got to deal with it, though. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill shall be brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This is all good stuff. God's saying, I want to make a way for you in a way that I might come and visit you and reveal my glory to you. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what God wants for His people. He wants them to know of His glory and His goodness. But they first have to deal with their sin. So again, it's a word of truth, a word of judgment, and it's a word of hope. It's a word of truth in that we need to call sin what it is. Sin, it's rebellion against the king of the universe. But especially in the world that we live today, people want to define sin on their own terms, which really what they're trying to do is completely do away with sin. Do away with guilt, do away with shame. But the problem is, even if you try to remove the standard, this is what's so convicting and so condemning, is that God has given us his word. He has created the universe. He's put laws in order that when we break his law, we feel guilt and shame because we have broken God's law, right? But what people want to do is they want to redefine everything to where there's no sin, in the hopes that then, therefore, there'll be no guilt or shame, right? But suicide is on the rise. The use of antidepressants and all kinds of anti-anxiety medicines are on the rise. Skyrocketing. Overeating is on the rise. Credit card debt from overshopping is on the rise. All of the metrics that tell us that people are miserable are on the rise, Why? Because even if you try to redefine something and if you try to do away with sin, you can't break God's word. Sin is still sin, and even if you deny God and you deny His word, when you break His word, you still are guilty. You still have shame. You still have anxiety. You still have fear. It doesn't matter what you want to try to change. It doesn't matter what you want to try to define away. It doesn't matter that you want to put God in a corner. He is still ever-present. He is still Almighty God. And when we try to break His Word, we're the ones that end up broken. So first of all, it's a matter of truth. What God says is truth. What God's Word is, is it is eternal no matter how we try to break it or do away with it or shove it in the corner, it's still there. We can't get away from it. It's also a matter of judgment. It's a word of judgment in that sin has to be judged. That's the way it's done away with. But we don't like that. We don't want to talk about that. But for God to not judge sin would make him an unjust judge. I've used this illustration many times, but just to put a little bit of a different twist on it. Let's say that somebody was repeatedly coming by your house and stealing your stuff. They came by and they stole a car. Then they stole, uh, you know, your spouse's car. And then they break into your house when they're gone. And you're gone and they're repeatedly stealing your stuff. Then they're caught and brought before a judge. And they're completely unremorseful. Like, yeah, I'm going to do it again as soon as I get out. It would be unjust for that judge to look at this person who is a lawbreaker, who is violating your rights, and to say, Ah, you seem like a good guy. Get out of here, you knucklehead. That would be unjust. We have a sense of what justice is. We have a sense of what righteousness is. It has to be dealt with. And so God's Word, when it comes, it's a matter of truth. It, It calls sin, sin. This is what it is. This is a problem. It's also a word of judgment in that God judges that sin. We'll get back to that in a minute, but it's also a word of hope. Because the end with God, especially in the life of a believer, is not judgment for judgment's sake. It's the judgment of sin that those who follow him might be freed from the bondage of sin and walk in the newness of life. It's that God wants to deal with it so that it might be removed from our lives and so that we can move on. So going back to that judgment for a minute, that's the imagery, that's the language that's being portrayed here in this Isaiah passage. He's talking about a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who does this sound like? A voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing that day for God to arrive, for his glory to be revealed. This is a foreshadowing of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a voice of one, what? Crying in the wilderness, repent the day of the what? Lord is at hand. And who was Jesus preparing the way for? Who was John preparing the way for? For Jesus. And so here is this prophecy in Isaiah saying, prepare the way. Make the crooked path straight. God's glory is going to be revealed. Then John the Baptist, some 600 years later, steps on the scene and says, like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Repent. The king has come. He has arrived. Prepare yourself to receive them. And then when Jesus steps on the scene, John, this is very, very key to understanding. John looks at Jesus and says what? Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. That's it. That's everything right there. Christianity is not a religion where you come and you just try to be a little bit better. It is the eternal God saying, you come and be mine. And the way that you do that is we must first deal with all of your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your waywardness. And we do that by calling it what it is and realizing that my son has paid the price for all of it. And so now, through faith in Jesus, Through beholding the Lamb of God who's died for my sins, I can come right to the Father. And there's never a moment in my relationship with God where I have access that I've earned. My relationship with God is always on the basis of Jesus Christ. And that is why we come and that is why we worship and that is why we gather together and that is why we proclaim him because we have a God who endures. We have a God who is forever. We have a God whose word is forever. And what God has promised is whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we have an eternal message of hope to proclaim to a dying and fading world. But lastly, it's an unbreakable word. It's an unbreakable word. Look at verse 8 again, Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, what? Stands forever. Dr. W.A. Criswell, longtime pastor at First Baptist Dallas for over 50 years. That was his life verse. That was his favorite verse. He stood on the authority of God for decades. And because of that, thousands of souls came to put their faith in Jesus Thousands of ministers were encouraged and pastors were sent out from that church. But that was the underlying conviction of Dr. Criswell was that God's word endures forever. And we're going to stand on God's word. And God blessed that conviction. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands, how long? Forever. And believer, that's our hope, that God is going to fulfill all of his promises to his children but the last thing about that is, with it being an unbreakable word, that is a, <laughs> that's a very hopeful thing, but it's also a warning. It's a warning and it's a hope at the same time. Let me explain it this way, and then, uh, and then I'm going to be bringing it to a close. Because God is, His word is unbreakable. It's always going to be proven true. We can't get around it. There's a warning there, but there's also a hope there. I'm going to take Matthew 18, a parable in Matthew 18, as one example. I could go on with examples of this for the rest of the day. I'm just going to give you one. Here's one example of what it means for God's word to be unbroken. There's 15 verses in Matthew 18 that tell the parable of the unforgiving servant or the unmerciful servant. Jesus is speaking this parable. He says in this parable that there was a king that decided to settle accounts. And there was one servant in his kingdom that owed him much money. I mean, we're talking about it would be billions of dollars in today's day and age. It was, he's really using hyperbole there. The amount that he gives, I think it was 10,000 talents. It's an amount that, in other words, is saying there's no way you'd ever be able to repay it. Okay? So this servant owes the king more than he could ever repay. And the king says, you owe me this. It's right for you to give it to me. You can't give it to me. And so he says, I'm going to have you and your family and all that you own sold to at least allow me to get what I can out of this deal. That servant that owed this great debt that he should pay, I mean, he's guilty. He falls down before the king. He says, have mercy on me. Have mer-. That's all he can say. He, do- he doesn't give excuses. He just, have mercy on me. The king decides to have mercy on him, forgives him this great debt, and lets him go free. Do you see what that's a picture of? Of what God does for us in Jesus Christ, right? He lets him go free. The debt is canceled. Now, it says that that servant that's been forgiven this great debt, you'd think he would live a life of gratitude and grace towards others, right? Right? No, what does he do? It says he goes out and he finds another servant that owed him. It was basically a small amount. It would be like if you found somebody that owed you a $20 bill and you had just been forgiven billions of dollars. And he says he finds this other servant that owed him just this piddly amount. And he says he grabbed him by the neck and he started shaking him and saying, where's that money that you owe me? And his fellow servant says, I don't have it on me. I can't pay you right now, but give me some time and I'll get it for you. But this servant that had been forgiven this great debt, he looks at this other servant that only has a little debt, and he won't be merciful with him. He won't be patient with him. He says, no, I'm not going to wait. And he, and he takes this fellow servant to the prison, and he says, this man owes me money, and he won't pay it to me. And he has this man in, in over such a small debt. The other servants, they see this, and they go, that ain't right. And they go and they tell the king. And the king is angry. And the king calls this servant that had owed him a great debt before him. And it starts out this way. "He says, you wicked servant. Now, when you get called before the king and he starts out that way, it's not going good for you. You wicked servant. After I forgave you such a great debt, should you not have repaid your fellow servant this little bit that he owed you? And he says, but because you've done this, you're going to be thrown into prison and you're going to be tormented. Don't miss that word, tormented until you repay me all of your original debt, until you repay me all that you owe me. This is one of the most chilling verses in all scripture. Then Jesus says this, so my heavenly father will do to each one of you if you from your heart do not forgive your brethren. That's a scary verse, because what Jesus is saying is, in me, you have been forgiven a great debt, and if you do not extend that same grace to your fellow servants, my Father will torment you. My Father will hand you over to be tortured until you give in, until you forgive, until you do to others as I've done to you. That's a scary verse. Now, that is one example of God's Word that endures forever, that is unbreakable. And so on one side, we have a warning. If you're here today and you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, you have a promise from Jesus that the Father is going to torment you. It doesn't matter. Stop all of this is what they did, that's what they did, but you don't know. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the anger in your own heart. That's what we're talking about. That's scary. But we also have the hope that if we forgive as we've been forgiven, we will know the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God in ways that we cannot begin to comprehend. You could go through the whole Bible looking at it that way. Here is the promise of God. Here's what happens when I disregard what God has said. But here is the blessing of obedience. But at the end of the day, we must understand that God's word is unbreakable. You're not going to get away from it. You're not going to get around it. But as we go into our time of the Lord's Supper, in just a few moments, I want to go back to that second point to say, you know, the word of our God that stands forever. It's a word of truth and judgment and hope, and that's what we remember as we absorb uh, as we uh, observe the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. We're going to remember the body of Christ that's broken for us. We're going to remember the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And, and what we understand is that it's a word of God that stands forever. Th- that is a word of truth. We understand that the only way we have access before the Father is because Christ. Blood was shed, his body was broken for us. That's a word of truth. It's a word of judgment, and and that the price has been paid. God's not going to take two payments for our sin. It's true. We are sinners in need of a Savior. That's God's truth. Jesus has taken the place for me, dying for my sins, receiving the judgment that was due me. We remember that through the Lord's Supper, but also it's it's a meal of hope. Because I understand that through Jesus Christ, I am a child of God. And all of God's promises are yes to me in Jesus Christ. There's more to come. God's going to fulfill it. And so what we do, and we're going to go into a time of invitation in just a moment, is three things, three instructions I want to give you. Number one, I want to encourage you to take this moment to examine yourself. The Bible says that we're to examine ourselves, to approach the Lord's table, uh, In a worthy manner. I've told you this, I think, every time. That's an adverb, not an adjective. None of us are ever worthy in and of ourselves. Adjective. We can come in a worthy manner. That is to say, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, help me today to know that I'm walking in obedience to you. That I can approach your table in obedience to you, not as a rebellious child, but as one who has submitted to your lordship in my life. So I encourage you in just a moment that we say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to come to your table kicking and screaming. I want to come in obedience to you and examine yourself. Number two, it's not completely closed in the sense that you don't have to be a church member here to observe the Lord's Supper. But here's what I ask. The Lord's Supper, you come to the table. Christ is the head of the table. You can't come to the table of one who you don't know. And so we ask you to... Check yourself to know that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins, to be a child of God. And as a child of God, you're welcome to participate. But if not, I I would ask you to just not participate in the actual elements. Or come give your life to Christ now and celebrate the Lord's Supper before you leave today, knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then thirdly, about the Lord's Supper, is it is a meal that talks about the more to come. Because Jesus, and we'll see this later Jesus says, I'll not drink of this again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So it's also a meal where we look ahead, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns. Would you please stand with me? Would you please stand with me? If there's never been a time in your life where you have put your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to be forgiven of your sins, to follow Him, to know Him, this is your opportunity to say, Lord Jesus, I... I, I want to believe in you, to trust you, to know that I'm yours. This is your opportunity. I would love to kneel down and pray with you right here. Uh, For those of you that uh, are sensitive to, to COVID, I have a mask in my pocket. If you walk down the aisle, you're wearing a mask. I'll put one on. Otherwise, I won't. I'd love to pray with you before you leave today. Or maybe we just need a moment to pause and examine ourselves. The altar's open. But I just want to encourage you, take this moment to prepare yourself. We'll move through the Lord's Supper pretty quickly in a few moments. But take a moment to pause, to reflect, to prepare your hearts to sit at his table. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing as the Lord leads you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you have given yourself for us, that we can be forgiven, that we can come to you. Draw near to you and know your goodness and your mercy in our lives. I thank you that you desire to set us free. You desire for us to walk in freedom, to be ambassadors and proclaimers of that freedom to those who are still in the chains of sin. Bless this invitation time now and prepare our hearts to sit at your table and to feast with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.